and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Danielle Dobson, I am very excited to have you on the She's the Boss Chats today. Thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited too. I can't wait. (laughs) My pleasure. Okay, so let's start off with, I know you've written an amazing book, but what else are you doing now? And Tell everyone about the book and, and what you're doing right now. So in terms of the book, that start, all started as a research project, a market research project, because I wanted to understand the people who I wanted to coach better. And that were those were women who were struggling with family and struggling with work because um, right. I was in that position too. So I was like, um, there's got to be a reason behind this. There's got to be more to it. And that sort of detective in me and that, that kid who's always asking the questions, why, why, why? So that led me to conduct this research and, and – um, What's the name of the book first? Yes, tell everyone what it's about and and what the name is. Okay, it's called Breaking the Gender Code. Yes. How women can use what they already have to get what they actually want. And that title Yeah, so that title's more about Yeah. And and I get I guess I mostly refer to it as breaking the gender code, but um, I felt that there needed to be more to it. Um, rather than just breaking the gender code, understanding what's here. Um, and saying, oh, that's that's no good and that's, you know, average and what can we do? But it's more about so understanding it, interpreting it, um, finding out what it means in our individual lives yeah, and then creating a framework or a way forward to navigate to write your own code. So that's, that's right. what, what the book's all about. Right. Yeah. And why? Uh, and it's, it, I mean, when you're not being an author, what mm-hmm. else are you doing and why? What, what have you, yeah, what are you up to? So I'm a coach and a speaker and a facilitator. So I guess that's kind of my labels, but what do I do? Well, I I help women, so professional women and uh, business women, understand the impact of the gender code in their own lives so that they can um, realise their, you know, full potential and the gifts they, they bring to our world in everything they do. So at work, in life, in our community, and, and even, you know, beyond that. And then Fantastic. I also, yeah, but that's actually not enough for me because I right. think that's, it's really good to, to help women understand this and navigate. But if you're still operating in a culture or a framework or a, a system or a structure that is just reinforcing those stereotypes, you can write your own code, but you're still stuck. So that's why now I also help businesses and organizations understand the impact of the gender code in their organisation so that they can leverage the power of the high-performing women they already have, um, attract the right talent into organisation and boost their bottom line. So can I ask the big um, elephant in the room question, which is Mm -hmm. how do you break the gender code? Excellent question. So, <laughs> 25 <laughs> words or less. Luckily we've got time, so take your time to explain. Um, but, but what do you mean by that? So breaking the gender code is, is first of all questioning all of the stereotypes and the beliefs. So the gender code is that set of default beliefs that we all recognise about the so-called natural differences between men mm-hmm. and women. And yeah. in particular it keeps women from pursuing our dreams and achieving success. And um, 
so the the gender code also typically pigeonholes women as carers and yes. men as providers. But do you think that that's changing slightly, or or did your research just pan out and say no? Nope, that's it's still doing the same old thing. It is, it's changing. This, this is the interesting thing. The expectations are changing, but we don't realise how deeply embedded into our culture this hunter-gatherer um, myth is. Yes. It, it forms a lot of the, you know, societal beliefs, uh, the family beliefs, the, you know, the dynamics in teams and community groups because a lot it's, of it's, it's default to that. That's right. I was going to say it's almost um, subconscious and there was a fantastic post I saw on LinkedIn earlier this year and it was a woman who said, did you realise, which of course I don't think anybody does, but when people do MBAs, the, the entire reading list is written by white men and so therefore our default is to assume that they're the authority in business mm, when actually mm. there are so many women who've written fantastic books. I just thought that was fantastic and she'd rewritten the MBA reading list to say yeah. how about we have women in each of the sections as well. Yeah. And I thought that's just, again, that real, really subtle um, thing that we're not conscious of that's just saying everything is set up to make us think that men are the authorities and men are the ones who have the power and we're, they're the ones that we should be deferring to and it's just rubbish. Absolutely. But, and the great thing to understand, though, is that it's structural, not personal, because yep. then we can have those conversations with men, with women, and with Without. women who don't see it or feel it. Yeah. Um, so we can say, okay, this is a structural thing. So if we go way back, so to the hunter-gatherer period, and if you look yeah. at modern-day hunter-gatherers now as well, um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that uh, women were, were just as capable of, of hunting and did, and men were more involved in child-rearing and gathering. And also if you think about, um, you know, surviving in that harsh environment, the hunter-gatherer environment, we see it as harsh, but they – to, you know, probably didn't, they just saw it as life, um, we would have had to collaborate, play to our strengths, um, you know, do things, you know, together and we were more egalitarian. Yeah. But what's happened over, you know, as we've evolved is these, as we've stored resources, there's been a need to protect the resources, you know, mm. the, whatever they are, land, knowledge. And under that list of resources come women because, because of our reproductive capabilities, we're considered a resource to be mm. controlled and managed. I mean, I'm not saying now, but that's how things have evolved. Um, because if you want to protect your resources, then you need to make sure that your offspring is your offspring. Because you not only yeah. get embarrassed by the fact that, you know, they're not your offspring, offspring but they're a competition to you that could yeah, take right. your resources. So it's been important to keep women in a in a support role and a role that is able to be controlled. And yeah. so this mate guarding behaviour started. And we still see that now in, you know, the extreme cases are violence and aggress aggression and then these, you know, codes, these gen this gender code that's within our society um, determined to keep women in a support role. So yeah. this that's... I think what it's, we need to be looking at in a more subtle way. 
It's really interesting that you say that because um, yesterday I did an interview with somebody who I imagine the episode will be just before yours Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. called Karen Austin-Reed who works with horses for leadership and I was saying how do you use them thinking that people would ride or whatever and she Mm -hmm. said it's about the structure of a herd, a horse's herd, which is obviously animalistic and she said in a herd the stallion is there as the security guard Basically, Mm -hmm. their role is to protect the women. The -hmm. women's role is not only nurturing, but it's also the education Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. younger foals as they come up and stuff. Really, really interesting, I thought, Mm -hmm. um, that kind of dynamic and Mm -hmm. to explain it that way. And then you kind of go, so the hunter-gatherer and security guard suddenly has become, you know, the king of the heap when actually it was the women who were, you know, feeding everyone, having the babies, educating them, bringing mm-hmm. them up, all that kind of thing. So it's fascinating. Oh, God, it I is. could talk to you about this for ages. Yeah, I mean, um, it is, and, and they've found that the gatherers in modern-day gathering societies can contribute as much as 66% of the calories of the tribe in addition wow. to doing all those things you just mentioned. So yeah. he's actually keeping everyone alive. Amazing. Amazing. So was there something, a light bulb moment is what I call it, but was there Mm -hmm. something that happened or something that you saw or something that you were working on that you went, oh my God, I can see this so clearly. I need to do something about it. I'm going to write about it and I'm going to start educating people. Yes. So it was, oh, you know what, actually it was an interview. So I did 52 interviews with, um, mostly women, a handful of men in mostly senior roles. Um, So, you know, international banks and accounting firms and, uh, but everything, journalism, um, you know, lead scientists. Because I was going to be heading down a very sort of boy, uh, masculine, you know, patriarchal kind of um, careers in the beginning. But you did all different types of careers. Yes. um, I did an MD of a a, um, women's health centre, um, Mm. a CEO of a not-for-profit that, helps uh, refugees, uh, entrepreneurs, recruitment uh, leads, all sorts of um, amazing women yeah. and, and men. And there was one particular interview with the CIO of an international bank and she shared with me that she firmly believed that she couldn't be do the job that she did and be a parent. So she chose not to have children. Yeah, and she wouldn't be alone. <laughs> and she's not I've alone. Heard that before. And, no. And and I and she but she was telling me about how she leads her people. She's got three hundred under her. And she basically was bought all of that nurturing and everything she wanted to create in her create in her own family if she was going to create you know, have children with her team. Oh. And for me and for me it was like, Oh my god, there is something in this that I wanted to sort of crack open a little bit more. And then I interviewed a HR um, director and she had just, she had a child and um, her child was just new. And she said, I just don't possibly, I don't think it's actually possible to do it all because I know what it took before I had my child to be a successful HR director. I had to work really hard. I had to drive change and innovation I used to have to work long hours now that I've had my daughter I can't do that anymore so I don't feel like I'm achieving because her parameters and her measures of success were around hours worked yes and driving change and then she said and I don't I can't be the perfect mum I said what's the perfect mum and she said um 
you know, a mum who has a nine to three job can do all the chores, <laughs> can fully support themselves and that everything's really calm. And I said, do you think you would ever be that mum? I was going to say, no. does that woman exist anyway? <laughs> I, know, anyway. I know. Maybe in the 50s, I don't know. But yeah. But so she was really conflicted. So she could, didn't see herself as successful at all because at, at either because yeah. she was attached to her success measures of ha- before having her children and what mm. that looked like, exactly what you said, long hours and driving. And then this ideal of what the perfect mother was. The cupcake making, really, you know, yeah. all of that kind of thing, which of course you can't be that mum. She's completely no. right. No. But you but, don't have to be that mum. Yes. And so this – Actually, sorry, that was the one where I'm like, there is something here that we're not really addressing about, you know, transitions, letting go of, you know, that, you know, what that measure of success of when, you know, pre-children, the Mm. transition into being a mother and then defining your own sort of ideal of what a perfect mother is or, you know, the mother you want to be based on your unique context. Yeah. So that's when I thought, I've got to get this stuff out there, all these interviews, this wisdom, these insights, um, and making all these connections and doing further research. I'm like, this is just too good to stay as a market research project. I've got to get it out there more broadly. And I just thought, okay, it's got to be a book or something. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, book. my God. <laughs> <laughs> I never really, I never set out to write a book, but it it wasn't just enough, like I mentioned earlier on, to to just reveal this, I had to, I found that it was really necessary to provide that like a, a way to navigate through it. Yeah. So, you know, a framework so that, so I pulled all the best bits of what everyone was telling me that was helpful for them. Um, and a lot of them talked about leadership. So I, I brought leadership into parenting and then parenting into leadership because I wanted to see what yes, was working well with both. So it was like this, I was always looking through this lens of what's working well in both. And then I experimented in my own family with their leadership lessons in, in, in life and family, um, did some experiments, spoke to people. So I really, I've road tested everything that I speak about in the book right? because I really wanted to help us all, you know, navigate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And just not feel this guilt. I mean, I think that's one of the most, you know, detrimental pressures that that we face as as mothers and and men as you know dads as well. Like that came up in one of the interviews. It, it just it just plays out differently in terms of you know how they they still feel guilty, but it you know they might work more to earn more money to be able to pay for more things to relieve the guilt. And it's a kind of a it sort of plays into the hunter sort of yeah. um, you know stereotype that they do it that way. And I guess for women it it plays more on our, you know, nurturing gatherer side. side, the guilt. But um, I guess, you know, my, you know, absolute wish and dream is if I could help more women and, and men, but mostly women and mothers, yeah, dump the guilt, just yeah. let it go and imagine what more we could create and be, you know. So that's, Yeah, very, yeah. very true. Well, I just sort of feel like the pandemic is – reset things in a lot of ways. So I personally am feeling this kind of movement happening of women who are going, you know, we can't sit around and wait for these changes to happen. We need to actually actively make them happen. And you're just another example Mm -hmm. of a woman who's gone, you know what, 
you know, it's not enough for us to sit and talk about this. We've actually got mm. to drive that change. Okay, so let's go back to, I don't know anything about your career at all, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing about it. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing when you were at high school, you didn't think when I grew up I want to write a book called The Gender Code. So <laughs> how has it all evolved? What has, what you know, were, did you finish high school? Did you have a big family? How, how did that all play out? And, and what was your early career like? Mm, great question. Um, I love going back here because I, I, I'm a reflector. So I was thinking, how did that all help me to get to where I am? So I was the eldest of three children, two younger brothers. And I guess I was the type of person, I played AFL um, before it was cool for girls, before we had good girls teams. Wow, I was did always, you? Yeah, I was ruck because... You know, the, the central position for people I, who don't I know have to AFL. Admit, I know n- nothing about sport and I pride <laughs> myself on it. But go on, tell you, just, just tell everyone else who's listening, they'll know. <laughs> well, it's the person who's the tallest in the team because, you know, girls, you know, grow quicker than boys. So I was the tallest yep. in the team. So <laughs> that was my position. I played with my younger brother. He was really, um, it was really quite um, grown up of him, actually, mature. Uh, so, yeah, I was always outside doing things in the bush. We, I grew up in the Yarra Valley in Victoria. Um, so always outside riding. So I was a real outdoors person. Always just curious about everything and anything. And that sort of played out in the subjects I chose for HSC because I chose biology, Italian, um, maths, like the hard maths, accounting, yeah. and we had to do religion. So I didn't quite know what I was doing. Um, you sound and- so like me. I ended up doing <laughs> physics and English lit yeah. and, you know, like ge- oh and geography and, yeah. and hard maths as well. And I'm shit at maths, but I just had a great teacher that I loved. But it's funny, isn't it? That, and I remember at the time the teacher saying, this is, uh, I don't know what you're going to be able to do with these subjects. <laughs> so what did you do with yours? <laughs> well, I, I didn't know again. I think it was one of those things where people could have said, you're going to be a nurse, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a policeman. I would have gone, okay, I'll give it a go. But my parents helped me and they said, you can be anything you want, Danielle, as long as you start with business and you might as well major in accounting. <laughs> so, <Right>. that's, <laughs> so that's what right. I did. I went, so. I went to Deakin Uni and I did an accounting degree. And right. um, it's interesting, it was right at that time where we had the last recession, that really big, nasty one. And I was in uni at the time and people sort just were not going. 2008, 2009, are you thinking around then? No, the, ni- the 91, 1990, 1991. It was the internet bubble or whatever it was, wasn't it? The, um, well, I don't know. Paul Keating said it was the one that we had to have. It was a recession oh, right, that, that we one. had to have. Yeah, <laughs> that one. I went overseas for that one. <laughs> oh, good one. Good move. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so you know, the accounting firms were just not hiring at the same rate as they were and I was thinking oh, I'm never going to get a job. So I was um, the editor, the chief editor of the uni magazine and that was where I spent a lot of my time. I loved that. So I... I did articles and stories I, on bands and interviewing people, Vox Pops. I spent most of I crammed all my shoots and lectures up into, you know, two days or two and a half days so I could work on the on the magazine and I worked in a fruit shop and stuff. But, um, but yeah, interestingly, I got a job through a fruit shop, the fruit shop customer. So I, I got my assistant accounting job and the rest is just history. I... Um, I, worked, I moved to corporate, sorry, I moved to private practice and I worked yep. there for a little while, but I didn't like the billable hours thing, like the six-minute unit. And this wasn't your business. This was you going and working for somebody who had a small private practice, okay? Yeah, yeah. So it was a, yeah. 
it was a sort of yes, a bit smaller than second year accounting practice. Yep. But I didn't like that, and then I so I went into corporate, which I preferred to have like a you know a culture and a um oh, I had cultures, but I, I wanted to to be part of a team rather than individually billing clients. Yes. So yep. then I went down this path of big boys toys, engineering services, and mining, and and all of this. So that you know the culture, I guess that you know, we learned about from the banking inquiry. Yeah. That was the culture that I kind of grew up in and I was very kind of accepted, accepting of that. I didn't really think much about Western. it. So No, but I thought right after I became a CPA, I wanted to do a bit more travel. So I went over to the UK for a good time, not a long time, and I met my ex-husband there. Yeah. And then eight years later, I came back via Italy and um, America. and um, yeah, so I, I decided I worked again on mine sites like metal crushes and slag pots and stuff like that. So wow. I, was in this, I was in this world of men, you know, like. I was going to um, say deeply embedded in the world mm, of men. Yeah, t- totally. And and this was the interesting thing with, with the research that I did with the book. I didn't I didn't get it. I didn't see the gender code. Like right. I, didn't, I didn't feel it because it just felt like it was normal. And I think this is where my work is really helpful for women who were like me too, who yeah. don't see it or feel it. And there would be a hell of a lot of them, I yeah. would think. Yeah, exactly. Particularly so, if you have had a career through corporate where yes. you wouldn't yeah. kind of know any different. It's been like that since you were younger. You know, it is the way it is rather than going, no, 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 it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was one of the questions I was asked, you know, for a, a job for a big, well, it was a big six-pack, maybe big four accounting firm. It was like, oh, what do you think about quotas? And back then I was like, well, I believe in merit. And, and we, we talk about that. But the thing is you, you articulated perfectly, Jules, before about who writes all the papers for the MBAs and who, yes. who provides the study. So who is determining the basis of merit? It's the people in charge. That's right. And if the people in charge are being men, then it's their idea of what merit is based on the system that they've been trained for their whole entire life. So yes, it's not actually about merit at all. No. I, mean, it, I mean, it's working hard, but it, and it, but it's not. But, it's actually a perception of merit. Yeah. So those complaints that people say about we don't want to have lip service and we're not going to go with quotas because you know and diversity and they don't like all of that kind of thing. But I would mm. argue that unless you open up those doors, you're never going to have two people with equal mm. skills because yeah. the women just get, you know, they're not part of the social group. They're not part of the old boys club. They're just kind of not on the radar. Mm, absolutely. And and it really hit home for me when I was interviewing the first female leader at a car industry like organization. She was the first senior yeah. female management leader. And she, she said that, about five years earlier, she delivered a diversity paper to her leader, which had been basically thrown back at her. And this will never fly in our organization. It's all, it's too male dominated. We're a patriarchal company. Um, the international leaders would never go for it. And I said, yeah. well, how did you go from that to, to being the first female leader and progressing like fairly short afterwards? And she said two things. One was the law, equal opportunities law. Yeah. So, so right. that played Thank a part. God. Yes. The second thing was that they worked out that 70% of the decisions on whether to buy their cars were determined by women. So they knew they had to start making some inroads. So when we talk about quotas, when we talk about the law, uh, 
and we talk about market forces and then we also talk about support. There's so many different aspects that we need to address concurrently to be able to break this thing and then write our own code. So it's not actually just a a linear process of, you know, quotas, get people in. In order to be able to ensure everyone, the right people are going for the job with the right skills and um, attributes, you know, we need to create pathways for men to home as well as women, pathways for women at work because you, you can't, you just really can't do it all in terms of a capacity of hours in the day. So yeah. we actually, we've got, it's got, it's like this whole holistic approach to the whole conundrum. You know, it, it's, it's all these different areas. So it's, it's childcare, it's good quality childcare. It's, you know, building our support communities and our villages and having people we can rely on and investing in that. It's, um, and for me, it's also about having successful women out there in your face in the media, which we just hardly ever see. We think that successful women are unicorns and they're not. No, you know, that, I think no. I think that's another thing, you know, and the other one is this is my personal bugbear, but it's mm-hmm. also when you see um, TV hosts and TV shows, the woman is normally the you, you can almost see its tokenism. It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the guy's going to be the one running the show, but he's brought a woman along just so that we appeal to the women out there. That's and right, it's just yeah. all kind of broken. <laughs> yeah. So we have some gender balance. But it's yeah. Not- yeah, it, but it's we, but it's yeah. not a power position, and so therefore it doesn't mm. actually do the job that you know they're trying to set out to do. It's really Absolutely. interesting. It is so interesting, and I think that's that's one of the you know interesting kind of conundrums or or ideas that I really want to unpack is how we, you mentioned it before about power position, how we view power, so what we see as powerful yes. and what we value. In, in that because, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of that um, this year in particular being, you know, ramped up about uh, the power of compassion, the power of um, care, the power of empathy in terms of making major change and protecting people versus what we traditionally see as powerful, and, you know, aggressive, um, you know, direct, um, you know, telling, you know, we got to kind of look yeah. at how we see power and leadership. Well, I think I think Jacinda Ardern actually has has. Oh, sorry, we just had a bit of a delay there. I think I was going to say <laughs> Jacinda Ardern has really become the poster girl, hasn't she, for mm. power mixed with empathy and um, making decisions that might be difficult, but not in a way that has to be so brutal. <laughs> mm, I mean, you kind absolutely. of look at her and you look at, say, Trump or, or, or somebody like that and you just kind of go, just they're so far apart and mm. the Trump model is just the old-fashioned model, mm. like in charge telling us what to do. Jacinda's absolutely. kind of going, you know, I, I just, anyhow, I love it. I mean, and I know a lot mm. of people do love her and, and what's going on, but it, it's these kind of things. We need these role models to be able to see that a person, a woman in power doesn't have to be a Hillary Clinton who's as tough as old boots, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. actually, you know, much more of a a kind of, I don't know, progressive. (laughs) Yeah, well, playing their own game. So, So acting in a way that's aligned with their own values based on how they've grown up, how, you know, their family dynamics, 
what they value, who they value, what's important to them. And because this is the thing that I realised that I that I could see with all the leaders that I was interviewing, um, the really successful ones are ones that have people lining up to be mentored to them and knocking on the door to be on their teams. They're people who deeply care about other people mm. and they, they have a high focus on setting everyone else up for success and human flourishing. They're the people that, that want to, you know, want people to lead them because they see that there's more, they see more in them than they see in themselves yet Yes, of their right. people. And so they, they're able to draw more out of, and this is what, the really brilliant leaders do. They they understand that it's not their job to have all the answers. It's their job to have all the good questions and bring out the brilliance in others rather than be brilliant themselves. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. Okay, so um, to go back to your career, just quickly, mm-hmm. were you an accountant up until the day that you decided to write the book? No. So, so, after- so I so I probably <laughs> interrupted you. Let's go back, tell I me, tell me how myself. it all evolved. Uh, so I'd been working uh, in the UK, so I worked there and then uh, worked in Italy and, and one of my jobs was to uh, map the, the chart of accounts, which is lucky I did Italian in HSC, hey? Yeah, very lucky, Matt. There <laughs> you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mapped the chart of accounts and I implemented a, a big accounting system there um, and then back in the UK for a bit and then we tra- moved to the US with my husband's work. So oh, because I was cool. this, yeah, yeah. So he was in the steel industry because we met, you know, in, in our role, in a role in the UK. Um, and because I'm a CPA and was flexible, I, I got work, no problem. So contract wherever work, wherever I went. So it was great. And I was working for a Silicon Valley company um, whose headquarters was in Pittsburgh. And brilliant company, did like compliance work and stuff like that. That wasn't so good, but the company was awesome. Um, so they were about three years and got pregnant with our first child. And we, so we were moving back to Australia when he was five months old and the work wanted me back, but I said, no, I'm not, not going to come back. We're moving anyway. And I decided when we got back that I actually, I wasn't going to go back into that corporate world. Um, I was in the privileged financial position to be able to make that choice. Yeah. Um, and Dan, my ex-husband, his name's Dan too, he was travelling a lot with his new role over here in, in, in Australia. And I felt like the you know, meaning and purpose of raising my son versus that corporate world that I knew. So that's not the corporate world that everyone knows or that world of work, but, you know, ba- which was primarily based on ensuring the lead guys, because they're all guys, get their bonuses and their long-term rewards and incentives and the share price is going up. So for me, that wasn't, that was ultimately what I was doing there. wasn't good enough compared to, and I was, I'm a hundred percent focused person. I really struggle. I can't multitask. I can't do those sort of things. I've got to give a hundred percent. So I decided to be a stay home parent. So I did that for about six years. And I had three sons, three boys. Got yeah, our lives then, are like parallel. I lived in London. I married an English guy called Dan and I've got three sons. No way. That? No way. <laughs> if you just dye your hair pink, people will think we're twins. Yeah, and we did crazy subjects for patients. Yeah, and, and I'm no longer married to him. We'll just leave it that way. <laughs> Neither am I. So, no. <laughs> Learned our lessons. Yeah. Um, okay, so so after you did the six years, what do you mm. do when you kind of look around after mm. that and go, 
I mean, if you literally, if so, you, if you weren't working at all, how did you get mm. back into the workforce, or what did you decide to do then? Well, I was working for the cancer council. I worked for the cancer council, so I was okay. a um, community engagement person. So we, I worked with the volunteer committees on the big event events. So. Um, uh, Relay for Life and, you know, Breast Cancer Month events, Daffodil Day, oh, amazing. that sort of That stuff. must have been very satisfying, was it? Yeah, it was also the worst job I ever had. Oh, my God, really? <laughs> Just yeah. bad culture? Well, the interesting thing is, um, so what happens, and this is what I caution and I, I support women that I work with in, is that I went into a role that was probably about three levels lower than, mm-hmm. than what I, you know, would really – I was structuring my life around my family re- responsibilities that I'd chosen yep. to do. Yes. So it was soul destroying, it, you know, knowing that you have so much more to give, but you're not contributing at your best. So you're not being seen, you know, for your, for being your best. Yes. You know, and what a silly leader life. it was in that organization not to notice that in you. But anyway. Well, yeah, I guess I applied for the, I, I just wanted to get back in because I knew our marriage yeah. was on the rocks too. And I needed to right. do something. Yep. So, um, so I did that for a while. And also I became a personal trainer. So I did my cert three and four in personal training and I had a little wow. personal training business, um, at, at the same, well, a bit after that. And then, and I love the transformation that, that the women who were coming with me to, to me were experiencing. And I, I specialized in pelvic floor friendly exercises for women who oh, come back after kids. And, um, but I, I wanted them to be, you know, driving the change. I didn't want them to be coming to me two or three sessions a week. So that's when I got into wellness coaching. So I became a wellness coach. So that was sort of taking that, that little bit step further. I was like, no, there's more to it. There's more to it. And that's when I became an executive coach. So it was like these building blocks because I was driven by this question, this gnawing question. It's not just about exercise or food or, um, you know, sleeping, it, it, there's something else that's driving people because why would they commit to yeah, a session of executive coaching but not wellness coaching? You know, wh- you know, yeah. what is it about this, you know, how we value things and where we place that? Um, I mean, I can see a lot of my clients were facing burnout, you know, executive coaches and, you know, who are mostly women as well and, you know, work and with emerging terrible. leaders. Uh, it's, it's terrible in the She's the Boss lunches we've had. Um, at one, there was one lunch we did, and the whole top row, so it was five or six women, each mm. told us how they had burnt out, lost mm. their immune systems, will never be able yeah. to recover. Like it's massive. Mm. It completely stuffed their lives in in a lot of ways. They had to rethink everything. Mm. So it's it's one of those things that I think, particularly women who want to be successful, drive themselves too far mm. and don't and don't don't understand that having a break is actually a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely, because we. We're conditioned to it though, because if we if we go back to say to the gender code, and if you think about what you know the the, the myths and the stereotypes that the gender code um, you know t- tells us and feeds us, that's one thing. But then we will buy into them and then create our own pressures and expectations. So we're not you know we're not immune to this thing like this. It's structural, but we buy into it, and that plays out differently to each of us. And, yeah. you know, and I say that with, you know, the most amount of kindness that I can possibly say because, and compassion to, to, to women, because the whole time I was doing this research and writing this book, the last thing I wanted to do 
was make anyone feel like they're not doing a good enough job. I mean, my whole yeah. book is trying to help people feel like they're doing and being enough. Yeah, true. <laughs> so I didn't want to have any judgment in there. I didn't want any of us to think we've got more things to do to add to our list of the, like, oh, I've got to do some self-care, you know, and that becomes now as a, well as everything yeah, else. You know, then, yeah. Everything else. And, <laughs> but if you really look at it, okay, if you really look at it, if we're trying to compete on the same grounds as people and predominantly men who don't have the same emotional and mental load that we're continuously carrying with our family, with, you know, our extended family, with our community, with our neighbours, with our that with our girlfriends a, and things as well, because that's another yeah. thing women take on. We love our girlfriends and we need them. Absolutely. But, and, and guys don't get that at all because they're quite happy to just live the, their little isolated life, going backwards and forwards, work, family, work, family. That's right, because they've been conditioned for that. So yeah. so if we think of it from, you know, a kind of hours in the day or even energy, because I, I kind of think we've all got the same hours in the day, but some of us have more energy. So it's about yeah. where we're directing our energy. If we're directing our energy at all of those things that are carrying the emotional and mental load, as well as the logistical side of looking after other people, and then we're expected to compete on the same terms as people who don't have all of that, then then what gives? You know, we've, your health at the yeah. end of the day yeah. or, or yeah. your expectation. And I'm just – Mental I'm just, and or physical health as well because absolutely. it could be both, but it's absolutely. definitely going to affect you. Absolutely. And and that's the whole thing. It's like there's – you know, I, I think part, part of, you know, the, the, the message that I want to get across here is that everything that we do in terms of caring for others – is highly, highly valuable. And going back to that hunter-gatherer percentage that I gave, so we're actually keeping everyone alive, you know, regardless of the fact that we're yes. hunting. You know and what I mean? giving them life in the exactly, first place. Exactly, exactly. I mean, look at that. Um, so, so I think we undervalue the caring that we provide and sometimes maybe overvalue the productivity. So so even if we look at, if we break it down on a daily, day-to-day, yeah. yeah. So. Often we'll go to the task, the productive task, if, because we can, especially if we're stressed, because it, it will give us a, a, a reading or a, an outcome unit of measure of how we're doing. So I've worked X amount of hours. I've sent X amount of emails. I've done that report. I've added this. Um, you know, I've contacted this number of suppliers or customers. Yeah. But if we sit down and have a conversation with our kid or we're really listening to them or, I mean, that's extreme, but, but anything, chat to our neighbour, whatever, a random person in the street, we don't get any sort of measurable unit of how we're doing, you know, tracking to our goals. Yes, yes. So it's so understandable we're less likely to commit to that. You know, if, we, yeah. if we're high achieving, high performing, and we've got these massive goals we want to achieve. So... I think the the thing is to realise that or, or question it first, productivity over caring and how we value it, and then just thinking, do we want something different? Do do we want to, you know, start valuing caring more and productivity less? And will that help dial down the pressure so that we know when you know that your contribution matters in, in that realm of caring and how valuable it is, maybe you're less likely to put as much pressure on yourself to be high performing or to be a perfect version of a mum and definitely it will relieve the guilt because yeah. I, you know what what kept coming out over and over 
is, and this is what helped me a lot. I had, I had loads of judgmental beliefs around productivity and motherhood. Absolutely. Right. And, and, you know, I thought all bankers were, you know, pains in the ass and it didn't care about other people. And then I started interviewing them and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I thought, I always think, oh, who's looking after the kids? All those really bad, you know, really negative, unhelpful stereotypes. But what I realized is that we all show how we care in different ways. Yes. So, so, so my mum is brilliant at washing and finding, you know, going shopping and finding those hard to find, you know, microwave, um, you know, dishes that you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, find. Right. And yeah. that's how she shows she cares. She, she wouldn't sit down and say, you know, I love you or how are you going? I'm here for you. Never that. But how she shows she cares is are those other things. And how I share, show I care for my children is around you know, giving them healthy food and trying to be the best listener I can or whatever. But that's not going to be for everyone. So I think when no. we all we understand how we how we care for others is is awesome. It's the best way because it's a way that we do it. Then we can relieve some pressure too, because that's then we don't true. have this thing, this ideal mum where it's all the best bits you know, of all the. One of the things that got me through it when I, because I moved back from England to Australia just as I got pregnant, basically, with my first child. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and, and so I had to go back to work almost straight away because my husband really w- wasn't earning and was happy to look after the child, which kind of was great, but mm. I would love to do it as well. Yeah. But I remember. What actually really helped me, and I've just suddenly thought that, no, this will have to be your next book, mm-hmm. is interviewing children about the parenting their parents did and yeah. showing that they are actually still fine. I yeah. remember a woman where I said, oh, my God, my child's been in childcare since six months old, and she went, I was all the way through childcare, you know, all the way all the way through my mum and dad worked and I was absolutely fine and she was mm. an adult. Mm. And I thought, Wow, phew. And then there was another time when, you know, we all used to laugh about the digital babysitter and putting the kids in front of the TV just to get some stuff done. And I was like, my kids are watching too much TV. And this girl said to me, I watch TV obsessively all the way through my childhood and I never watch it now because I, you know, I got that out of my system. And I was like, there you go. So all that kind of guilt that you have about doing things actually doesn't make any difference. And and you can have well-rounded adults that have been brought up in lots and lots and lots of different ways absolutely and, um, I, I, that is brilliant and you must have read my mind because that is my next book it's, you're not it's, serious is it yeah it's going to be called oh my don't you want to make me happy mum so yes. it's, like the, it's the child perspective so it's, it's looking at what actually they see as happiness versus what we see as happiness and yeah. is it actually about happiness or is it about fulfillment well if you can so, do an extra chapter of when they've grown up to show that yes, they can still yeah. be bankers and lawyers or whatever or builders or whatever they yeah. want to be depend you know that um it really we're just guiding them the best that we can and if you know and they're their own person as well and they'll survive or not survive to an extent based on their own personality and skills absolutely and i think that's actually the key thing is to know your child and then work mm. with that, work with their strengths, look at what's strong, not what's wrong, and same with ourselves as well. And I think what can happen is because we have access to so much information, you know, books and websites and experts, that we can decontextualize the data. So we'll take that snippet of, oh, they were, they're in childcare, and people will say the stats are that if you've been in childcare, this is bad because of X, Y, and Z, and we're like, oh, my child was in childcare, but we decontextualize that because we don't think about the whole entire context of their their um, childhood, 
and yeah. how we were as a parent. Because there's so many other aspects That's to right. It. And it's also, and, you know, the role modelling that we give our children. And, I mean, I don't have absolutely. daughters and neither do you, but if I did, I would love them to see that I have worked mm. all the way through. And I love that my boys, you know, have seen that mum works all the time because it makes them want to do it. I've got one, I've got twins, and one of them mm. has been saying since he was about nine, when am I allowed to work, when am I allowed to work? <laughs> he's 14 and a half, so he's about six months away, and he's, like, counting the Can't days. Wait. And now it's, I hope you don't mind, mum, but the day I finish school I want to move out with my my friends and I'm like you might not feel that way <laughs> other one of course wants to live with me till he's 100 but oh, okay. I just think it's so funny that yeah. they are so their own people absolutely, and they'll do absolutely. what they want yes now this has just been fantastic and we've hardly touched on a whole lot of the questions so I'm just going to ask you a couple of other little mm-hmm. questions mm-hmm. are there any women just because this is a show for women about women inspiring women mm-hmm. uh, have there been any particular women that have helped you in your career that you'd like to do a shout out for or tell us how they helped you or no one stands out oh there's so so many <laughs> so so many oh that's think- good to hear that's really good to hear <laughs> with a corporate background because a lot of people say not until I left the corporate world mm. did I start meeting women who were really great oh well actually my um she's actually one of my good friends now Megan Stevens she she and right. Ro- and Rona McLeod they were my first this is the interesting thing my my mining yeah. you know big boys toys organization had um women in the finance department who were you know, senior accountants and finance managers. So they changed everything for me, like in, in terms of right. who they, who they, who, how they saw me and what I was capable of and in, in being inclusive. Um, and yeah, with a very pragmatic approach as well. So, so definitely, definitely those, um, those guys and they're, they're my friends now too. Megan's down in Melbourne and Rona's in oh, Sydney. That's great. Um, and then, yeah, I get, I, Definitely when I, yeah, when I left corporate, my, my best ever coach was Pam Dibbs and she's the one who gave me the idea for the research project. She said, you've got to get, yeah, she said, you've got to get to understand the women that you want to work with and support better. What's going on for them? What are their big challenges and how can you help them? And, um, that was in a, at an intensive in Seattle. I went, she lives over there. She's English and she's brilliant, amazing sense of humor. So she's changed everything for me and her support. uh, It's just, it's been incredible. Um, Jackie Lane, um, who was my book advisor. Yes. Book advisor. Yeah. She's amazing. Uh, Jacqueline Nagel, she helped me put together the framework for, you know, the, the book and come up with these great ideas and she's brilliant. And then at least oh, in, uh, there's just so many. Yeah. 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 Oh, good, good. Well, that yeah. is great. And, I, and I'm glad that you were able to come up with names. It, it always kind of, I don't feel sad, but it, it, there are women who say, no, there's not really been anyone that's helped me. And, uh, you know, particularly other women mm. and they go, no, no, you know, in my career, they were all, you know, we were, we were all dog eat dog or cat eat cat or whatever the expression is. And I just felt so sad for them. So it's great to hear, mm. particularly mm. with your topic as well, that yeah. there've been women. Have mm-hmm. there been any, any moments along the way where you have thought, oh, and, and for me, I know my marriage ending was one of them, but where you mm-hmm. just think, what am I even going to do? Like I just, I'm, it's just all turning to shit and I don't know what to do. <laughs> and then I look back on it and go, wow, best thing that ever happened to me because it did make me change direction or do this or focus on that. Have mm. you had any moments like that along the way? Absolutely. And uh, it, once again, another um, 
experience we share. Uh, so we lived in Beijing for a year when the kids were two, four, and six. We moved yeah. over there with Dan's work. And I just went there to regroup the family. He was never there. I had a perfect life here. But anyway, so I moved from the beach uh, to... To smoky old China, Shanghai. Yeah, Beijing. So even worse. Beijing, yep. It, the pollution was 27 times worse than what World Health Organization said was okay. I went from doing everything to having a driver. That sounds great, but um, not when they don't speak English. And, you know, you want to be independent. Yes, I live in, yeah, I live in Paiyi, uh, which is uh, she looks after the kids and, and does like house stuff. Yeah, five days a week, which I didn't choose. I only spoke um, uh, Mandarin. No, <laughs> my Mandarin was poor. Um, yeah. So basically just walked into this place. Totally not. And then Dan was never there either. He, he just yeah. chose to be out all the time, the whole reason why I moved there. So... That was so, so pivotal. I was like, actually, this isn't, this where we're gone. This is not, I've got to start getting my act together. And I actually started right. writing a book then about China, which I haven't okay. published. And I started ramping up like the wellness coaching, um, you know, started studying that. Um, I started putting things in place um Content, you know, getting back so into the corporate world. Yeah, it was my escape plan. Well, first yeah. I had to escape right. Beijing and get back yes. home. Uh, so I did that, and then I just started putting everything in place. But that was like this this incredible experience because it wasn't a moment; it was a series of moments where it's like you're so emotionally numb. Like it's almost like your body creates this anesthesia to because you're so distraught and you can't think straightly. And I, it's you know with clarity. And I think what helped me was straightly just one little word, thing. Though. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. You said straightly, I can't think straightly. Yeah. straightly. And clarified yourself, but I actually think that's a great word now you mentioned straightly. it. Straightly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, just I think just choosing one step at a time, you know, one thing at a time. Yeah, and, great and, advice. Yeah. I think that was it. And what kept me going was the kids. It's like my well-being is the most important here because if I go down, we all go down. You know, when I go back to uh, home because my family's interstate or overseas, so I didn't have support group network back here. So that's been a reason why I've always invested in my wellbeing because, you know, exercise and eating well. It's important, yes. It's important. If there's no you, who's going to look after the kids or anything else? That's right. There's no plan B because their dad also lives in China now. Um, Okay, right. Yeah, so you're really. I'm it. So that's why that helped me put a higher focus on well-being because I just didn't have a backup plan. So yeah, and, <laughs> so, yeah. and I guess and and I guess inadvertently sort of took you on this path that you ended up doing the research and writing the book as well. So mm, it yeah. is those funny moments, isn't it, where you just think, "Oh my God, what am I even going to do?" Mm, that mm. you're forced to think of something to do, and and it's Absolutely. on those along those lines that you learn. Yes. Um, what about work and life? Do you have set hours that you kind of work so you've got time with the kids in the evenings or on weekends or does it all kind of merge into each other? It merges into each other and I think like most of us in particular this year with the working from home yeah, well, and yes, this year. far out, the, <laughs> the online learning. Year. Oh, my God. Um, so that's been an interesting adjustment. But what, what I – yeah, so because I'm working at home, I will do um, – you know, I have, a, I have set hours that I start in the morning after I've done sort of exercise, set everyone else up, you know, like get the puppies ordered, all that sort of stuff. 
Um, and then I usually do work in and around the kids' stuff, like after school or whatever. But if I'm working on something that really needs to be done, I'll phone a friend to help out, yep. like get yeah, ask right. another mum. And I think that's something that I talk about in the book a bit is building your community. It takes time because you've got to make friends before you call on a friend, you know. And Yes, yes. And there's got to yeah. be that level of trust there that, you know, you yes, it's you need to go and get drunk with them is my, yes, always yeah. my tip. <laughs> Actually, I'm, just I'm thinking, sure that's, that's incredibly probably... PC, but it always works. No, but I'm just thinking all the ones that I trust, I have been drunk with. Isn't that funny? Yeah, well, I, I had a, a neighbour we discovered when our sons were in grade two that we lived across the road from each other. And I remember she came over and I said, come on, let's have a crack open a bottle of champagne. And we became besties that night. <laughs> and really, ever since, you know, there's just nothing I wouldn't um, discuss with, you know, not discuss with her. Or, or if I if she turns up and I'm in my nighty looking like, a dog in the morning it doesn't really matter mm. because it's her you know it's that kind yes. of thing and I think yes. that that builds from you know getting messy together once anyway but yeah. not that I'm advocating <laughs> alcohol to anyone <laughs> okay one last question mm-hmm. is there a quirky fact about you that you would be up for sharing that most people don't know about you oh I don't know if they don't they could probably guess but I am a self-development ninja or, or a nerd I'm just oh, I, if anything's going around self-development or, you know, something that, you know, a course or, you know, a book or whatever, I'm there, I'm doing it. You are um, the, wo- the woman. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. And, and then, oh, that's and great. Then, but then I also like to share it with everybody, but not everyone's ready <laughs> to listen. <laughs> so it's like you, you get to this thing, it's like, but it works really well and, and I've tried it surely you don't want to try it. It's so good. And and I think that's what's really helped me with this whole book process and the research is lowering down the judgment, looking at what other people value, um, you know, paying attention and valuing that and understanding that they're not, they might not be quite there yet, but you can take them along on that journey, you know, but meet them where they're at. So, yeah. yeah. Great. Great advice. Now, Danielle, where can people buy your book and where can they get hold of you? So they can buy my book on my website, which is uh, codeconversations.com.au and also all the online bookshops and also actual bookshops as well. Um, I'm not sure um, which one's down in Melbourne, but definitely like my local ones. Have you got them on your website? Does it say on your Mm. website what bookshops? Okay, so we'll just send everyone to your website. Sorry, it doesn't say what bookshops. Sorry, okay. but it, it, they're on, it's on Amazon, Booktopia, Kobo, yeah, uh, all of those. Um, and I'm working with someone that you know on the audio version, so I've been recording that. Oh, Dave, that. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, Jackie so. is the book coach, so, yes, yes I've been yes. hovering around your circle for a while maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, li- so, listen. So that's good. No, I was just going to say thank you so much for um, doing this interview today. It's just been fantastic and I can't wait to share it and I love what you're doing, so keep doing it. Thank you. Thanks. It's been really fun, really fun. Thanks, Jill. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'stheboss.com.au. She's the boss.